This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. On this week's episode, New Orleans is considering a proposal to adopt smart city technologies, which it says will help close the gap on the digital divide, but some privacy advocates are concerned. The 2022 city budget will have parity for the first time between the DA and public defender's offices, which candidate Jason Williams had advocated for during his campaign. At a budget meeting this week, DA Williams indicated that he may have had a change of heart. And there was a high-profile no-show at a budget hearing by the Orleans Parish Sheriff this week. We'll discuss what happened. The Louisiana Department of Education and NOLA Public Schools want to exit a consent judgment they've been operating under for more than six years, but the Southern Poverty Law Center doesn't think they're ready. And we'll discuss the controversy surrounding the proposed new names for the Lusher Charter School, which will be decided this week. Those stories, insight, and analysis coming up on Behind the Lens. Joining us this week, government and cultural economy reporter Michael Isaac Stein. Hi, Michael. Hey, Carolyn. Criminal justice reporter Nick Crastle. Hey, Nick. Morning, Carolyn. And education reporter Marta Jusen. Good morning, Marta. Hi, Carolyn. Michael, your story's up first. Mayor LaToya Cantrell's administration is considering an expansive proposal to create a new city-directed internet service to compete with Cox while setting up thousands of new so-called smart cities devices. The administration has touted the plan as a way to address the city's digital divide, but some worry about the privacy implications. It's a really long and technical proposal. Take us through the broad strokes. What is the city trying to do? Yeah, so like you said, there are a lot of details in there. Um, You know, the the city is looking to achieve a a bunch of different goals here, but, you know, kind of at the broadest level, there's two primary goals. Um, The first one is to set up a private internet network um, for the city government itself, um, which will allow it to to not only use in city buildings, but will also, you know, allow them to start installing, you know, these so-called smart cities devices that, that need to be connected to the internet and that are um, you know, uh, uh, installed all across town. So, you know, this can include something like a, a smart street light, for example, which instead of just like a normal street light, it has a video camera in it and it, it has other sensors in it that will be feeding data um, back to the city. But in order to do that, you know, you need to have a, a, a network that the city can use. So um, that that's one part of what they're trying to set up here. Um, the second thing um, would be to use that network to to offer residents and businesses an alternative connection to, to existing providers like Cox. What this looks like, you know, it's going to be a paid subscription service. Serving. A lot of times when we're talking about public Wi-Fi, people imagine, you know, you're walking around on the sidewalk and wherever you go, you have, you know, a free internet connection from the city. Um, that, that's not exactly what the what, um, city is going for here. Um, the, the, the goal is more about providing in-home uh, Wi-Fi services, the same as you get from Cox and AT&T, um, but, you know, adding kind of that, that competition into the market. Okay. And because of one of the one of the things that they're trying to address is to bring internet connection to underserved populations. In that regard, does this tap into at all the infrastructure bill, which was finally just passed this week? So so this particular proposal, um, the financing model doesn't include um, any federal funding. In fact, basically, the, the way the financial model works here is that it's it should, if everything goes to plan, it shouldn't really cost the city any extra money to implement. 
Um, basically, the way that this is working is that a, a, a group of businesses under um, you know the name Smart and Connected NOLA is going to be paying for all the upfront infrastructure it will take to set this up. And you know, while the city will have to pay some amount of money, they're hoping that you know that that'll all be covered by you know uh, cost savings that this is supposed to bring to us. Um, so you know, as as of now, um, I haven't heard any talk of, of using that federal infrastructure money um, because again. Um, you know, they're really banking on these private companies bringing forward a lot of that investment up front, um, you know, in exchange, you know, to start making some profit off of some new advertising and data mining opportunities that are going to happen as a result. Okay. And tell us about other cities, why cities are interested in this kind of technology and what other cities maybe similar sized or similar vibe of New Orleans have, have implemented them successfully? Yeah, so, so the smart cities concept, um, you know, it, it's something to, to pay attention to. Um, it's been growing really fast in recent years. It's, it's, it's now a multi-billion dollar industry. And, you know, the, the core idea of a smart city is basically that all the traditional infrastructure that a city has should basically be upgraded and interconnected um, so that they're all collecting data, feeding that data back to the city so that the city can improve city services, can help with public safety initiatives to collect data that can be packaged and sold for revenue. A good example is, you know, uh, smart traffic lights. So, you know, if you look at your traditional traffic light versus a smart traffic light, a smart traffic light may be able to pick up data on traffic patterns. You know, let's just say it's at an intersection and, and one direction of traffic is a lot more congested than the other way. The smart traffic signal might be able to pick that up and adjust how long it's giving the green light to that more congested lane of traffic. Um, so, you know, th that's an example of how picking up that data, analyzing it in real time can, can kind of help improve city services where traditional infrastructure kind of hasn't, you know, been able to. You know, and, and like we talked about, you know, one of the big reasons why um, programs like this are so attractive to cities right now, especially smaller cities with, you know, limited budgets, um, is that they're often implemented for no, with no upfront investment from the city's um, own money um, and, and no taxpayer dollars upfront. Um, and the reason for this is because, you know, when you add all of these, you know, sensors and cameras all around cities that pick up just massive, massive data sets, you know, you're picking up some very, very valuable data. Um, and so often what will happen is that um, companies will offer to build out all this infrastructure in return um, for the ability to, to profit um, off of that data and off of other advertising opportunities that are brought up um, with them. So, so that's kind of, you know, the way we've seen it spread. But, you know, I, I think that what we've seen in other cities, you know, one, one piece of technology we're talking about here are smart street lights, 3000 uh, new smart street lights, um, each of which will be equipped with at least two cameras um, and a microphone. So, you know, we, we saw this installed in uh, San Diego, for instance, and, and, you know, I think what we saw in San Diego is what you've seen in other cities with smart, you know, that have introduced smart cities uh, uh, technologies, which is that the privacy implications aren't always 
apparent upfront. Mm. You know, it's not always widely understood, you know, how invasive these technologies can be. And so what you saw in San Diego is that, you know, two or three years after they were first introduced, it was revealed that these cameras were now being used for police investigations. Um, when originally, you know, they said the cameras would be just for uh, analyzing traffic patterns and, 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 you know, making the flow of traffic better. Um, so, you know, th- there was kind of this big la- backlash in San Diego, which forced the city to turn off the street lights and, and basically start work on, on comprehensive privacy protections that the city realized they didn't have in place when dealing with something like this. Has New Orleans addressed that? What's interesting about New Orleans is that uh, in 2020, uh, the city council actually almost instituted a smart cities pilot program, which was basically would be a much, much smaller version um, of what of what's being um, discussed today. So, for example, the, the current proposal adds 3000 new smart streetlights. The pilot program was only about 150 smart streetlights. Um, and at that time, as it was going through, the city's most well-known privacy advocacy group, which is called Ion Surveillance, you know, started bringing up some of these concerns about what the data was going to be used for. Were there policies in place to dictate could they sell this data to, to anybody or what kind of data could be sold or stored? Could it be used for law enforcement? All these different types of questions that come around um, this type of data collection. And, and they, they were able to convince then Councilman Jason Williams, who is now district attorney, that they were able to convince him that the city was not ready to adopt something like this. And, and so he put that program on hold until the city could kind of build these more comprehensive privacy regulations. Now, the city did end up passing a, a landmark privacy uh, ordinance um, at the end of 2020, but it was well cut down from what was originally proposed from privacy advocates and, and kind of fell short of what those advocates felt was necessary to provide ongoing you know, oversight of these issues. So. We were much further along than we were even a couple of years ago. But I think if you talk to privacy advocates um, in this city, I, I don't think they would be very comfortable um, with, with where we're at, you know, especially considering this, this proposal that's coming down the road. Right. There's already some backlash from privacy experts, but also from Cox, who will see some increased competition, clearly, if this goes through. Who else? Yeah, so Cox had, had submitted a proposal for this as well, um, um, but they were not selected. They were actually the, the, the second highest rating. Um, you know, obviously, um, Cox is feeling like this is a threat to their customer base. Um, you know, we, we haven't heard that explicitly from Cox, but, but um, you know, without a doubt, you know, the, what, what this proposal really is, is, is trying to get customers away from Cox, AT&T, and the other existing providers and move them onto the city service. Um, you know, that, that's a necessary financial component of this plan. In order to get enough money to fund it all, um, we're going to need people to switch to this plan. Um, so, so obviously, Cox has, you know, self-motivated interests here um, in, in, in trying to shut this down. Um, but it, it does bring up an interesting point, which is that, you know, under, under state law, um, you know, municipalities in Louisiana really are limited. Um, there are restrictions on on when and how um, cities can offer Internet services. It, it's one of a number of states that has these types of laws, you know, that have been normally associated with, with conservative and, and business conservative politics and business interests. But it basically requires that cities go through a number of steps in order to start uh, offering services like this, steps that 
you know, as of yet, the city isn't pursuing. From a, a, a strict reading of the law, um, what the city is proposing would, would appear to be a violation, although they appear confident that, that the way that they're going about it is, is compliant with the law. I mean, they're very clear that they have no intention of, of doing anything that, that would violate the law or make them open to, to um, legal challenges. But, you know, that, that is going to definitely be something to watch for. Again, New Orleans is a big customer base in Louisiana. So, you know, Cox, AT&T, you, you, the good money says that they're going to try to, to, to um, you know, challenge this. Right. Finally, the, the proposal talks about the digital divide and some people who are having ac- access issues. And that I think was felt more acutely probably in the last year and a half during the pandemic than ever before. How does this how does this proposal address getting service that's so needed to those folks? How do they do it? Yeah, l- l- like you said, I mean, uh, um, Internet access is a big issue in New Orleans. I mean, all over the country. But but in New Orleans, we know that there are thousands of people without Internet access, which, like you said, during the coronavirus, when you had remote work and remote school, it became a really acute problem, um, you know, especially when you didn't have libraries and, and cafes and and other places open where people, you know, access Wi-Fi out of their homes. So, um, it, you know, like you said, it became this pressing issue. Um, what, what's interesting about this proposal is that at, at least in the initial plan, there doesn't appear to be a clear way that this is going to provide internet um, to people that can't afford it. Again, to be very clear about this, this isn't, you know, the type of thing where you're going to walk out of your home you look at your phone and now there's some, you know, city Wi-Fi service that you can connect to for free. For the most part, it's going to it appears that it's going to require paid subscriptions. You know, so, so the same way that you pay your monthly bill to Cox, you would be paying a monthly bill to this new service. Now, there, there are suggestions in the proposal of eventually subsidizing some of these subscriptions or, or, or just making them free to certain low income residents. Um, but that isn't baked into the plan. It isn't required, necessary, you know, as of now. Now, I should say that what we're looking at is a proposal um, that that this this group of companies put together in response to the city's request for proposals. We can assume that as they negotiate the city and these groups, things will change. So that there's a chance that in those negotiations, the city will build in something that guarantees that some of these um, um, services are gonna be subsidized or free. But as of now, it, it's more of a suggestion than, than a core part of the plan. Hmm. You know, a, another question that I have is that, you know, this comes down to subsidizing or just paying for people's um, internet service. How much cheaper is it to do it through this new city directed service than simply paying for cops, Cox or AT&T subscriptions for people? Right. Um, you know, that, that type of financial detail is not included. Um, so. Again, how, how far this would go to kind of close that digital divide, um, you know, it, it's it's going to, you know, again, it's not built into the plan. So it's not guaranteed as of now. Um, so it, it's really going to come down to how these contract negotiations go and ultimately, you know, how the city handles it going forward after that. Yeah, I didn't read the full infrastructure plan, but I know this was one of the tent poles of the whole thing was increasing access to underserved communities throughout this country. But I'm wondering if there was, if there is any of the infrastructure money that's coming to Louisiana that has been earmarked for this kind of thing exactly. Yeah, I, I, so so I can't speak to what the infrastructure bill is ultimately gonna pay for. You know, it, that, that's gonna be a process that's gonna play out over the next months, years, um, you know, but, but I will say that there are overlapping attempts 
um, to kind of provide a service like this. The city council, kind of separate from the Cantrell administration, has been, you know, pushing for public Wi-Fi for, for low-income Wi-Fi access. So, you know, it, it's not that this is the only plan, mm. you know, on the table. Um, and, and, you know, already we're seeing some doubts from some city council members. Um, city council uh, member Helena Moreno, um, you know, ha has brought up concerns. I mean, concerns especially around because, you know, it, it, while this plan is introduced as cost cost neutral to the city, I mean, there are other costs, you know, if, for example, this does data mine resident information to sell, right? So that that's how this project would be paid for, you know, maybe the city council ultimately, you know, who's going to have to approve this plan ultimately is not okay with that. And maybe later on, they go chase these infrastructure dollars. So, I mean, I do think that it gives, you know, if the city council chooses to oppose this, um, the infrastructure plan and the potential millions of dollars available um, for, for, for digital equity could give the city council a little bit more backing to push back on this because, you know, again, with this infrastructure bill, it may not be the case that it's this plan or no public Wi-Fi at all. You know, th there right. are other options out there right now that haven't been around in recent years um, that, that maybe the city council decides is a better fit. So mm. um, I, I don't know how that's going to play out, but I do think it's relevant um, in this conversation. Okay. So what's next, Michael? What happens next with this? Yeah. So, so like I said, it's, it, you know, this isn't a done deal. Um, you know, the, the administration is now negotiating um, with this, this group of, of, of companies to, to kind of hash out this, you know, a, a beginning 15 year deal um, that would govern how this works. Um, you know, once those negotiations go through, that will then have to go to the city council. If the city council approves it, then, you know, we're adding thousands of new pieces of infrastructure to the city. So there's going to be permitting processes, zoning processes to go through. So, so it's going to be a long, you know, if this does go forward, it's going to take a while. There'll be more chances for public input and all that. So, you know, again, this is going to, you know, continue to get hashed out by the administration and then it'll get to the council. Thank you. Thanks, you know. You're listening to Behind the Lens. I'm Carolyn Heldman. My guests this week are government and cultural economy reporter Michael Isaac Stein, criminal justice reporter Nick Krastel, and education reporter Marta Jusen. Hi, I'm Madeline Arufo, and I'm a freelance reporter for The Lens. When you listen to this podcast or read a story at our website, you join in on the process of examining life and culture in a way that makes us all better citizens and better people. With more and more noise and information coming at us every day, it's important to have a place you can rely on for truth and balance. Please make a tax-deductible donation to support our work at our website, thelensnola.org donate. And thank you. All right, Nick, you're up next in criminal justice. We are several days into long hearings on the 2022 New Orleans City budget. And there was a high-profile no-show this week during one of those meetings. What happened? Sheriff Marlon Gussman was, was set to present on Wednesday, and he informed the council early early Wednesday morning or, or possibly late Tuesday night, it's not entirely clear to me, that, that he was delaying his hearing. The sheriff is up for re-election this year, and the primary election will be, will be on Saturday. And this was sort of a, an opportunity, I think, that some advocates saw for some... Uh, public public transparency around his budgeting process prior prior to that election, um, the sheriff did not show up. The reason that that his office gave when we asked them was that 
under the consent decree that, that the jail has been under for you know around a decade, there is a budget working group that was set up by the, the federal court. And that budget working group is meant to sort of facilitate conversations between the sheriff's office and the city. And there is a, a chairperson that has been appointed by the court, a, a lawyer named Tommy Vassell. And they get together and, and can discuss parts of, parts of the budget that, that the city and the sheriff may disagree on. Um, in this year's budget, the, the city proposed, you know, somewhere somewhere in the range of seventy-five million. The sheriff has asked for for slightly more money than the than the mayor has allocated to him. So the sheriff's office said that we that they needed to get together and, and discuss this. However, the city said that that the sheriff's office only reached out to them this Monday, just just days before he was scheduled to present about convening this meeting, uh, and they they didn't have an opportunity to do that. Uh, and, and the chairperson of this this working group, you know, he he told me that basically the sheriff was free to pre- to present prior to prior to this meeting. Um, There's nothing stopping him from from you know going before the public and, and uh, presenting his his proposed budget to the council. Hmm. Do you think the fact that he didn't show and and asked for a later date after the election is related to the election? You know, I think that's up for interpretation. Um, I can't say, you know, I think that that was sort of the, the feeling among some advocates and, and uh, maybe some other people who, who were uh, watching the meeting. But, you know, I, I can't I can't uh, really speculate on what exactly his, his uh, intentions were. OK. In other news around the proposed budget for 2022, this will be the first year if it goes according to plan, that the city achieves what it defines as parity between the Orleans Parish District Attorney's Office and the Orleans Public Defender's Office. This is pursuant to an ordinance the council passed last year, which DA Williams, as he was a candidate for DA, had been advocating for. What's the background on the parity or ordinance and what is the mayor offering? Well, so the, the background is that the, the Orleans Public Defender's Office has, has for a long time, you know, said they were underfunded and been been you know, really strapped uh, to provide representation for uh, poor people accused of crimes in New Orleans and, and you know, have at times had to had to refuse cases. Their uh, attorneys often have, you know, huge caseloads of, of over of hundreds of cases. So they've really been vocal advocates for getting more city allocated funding. Some of their funding in the in, in the past and, and continues to come from traffic tickets from from court fines and fees. And they argue that not only are these uh, revenues insufficient. They're um, inconsistent, and and they also, you know, I think are opposed to the fact that that some of their funding stream actually comes from their clients, um, people who who have been found to not be able to afford attorneys, and and we are asking their them to pick up the tab for for the public defender's office through through these things like fines and fees. So last year, with the help of then council president and candidate for district attorney, Jason Williams, the council passed an ordinance that mandated that the public defender's office be given 85% of the funding that the city gives to the district attorney's office. Now, DA Williams at the time was running his campaign and running on a very progressive platform, trying to, to uh, appeal to people who may have concerns about, about public defender funding. So this ordinance was was passed last year, um, and it was celebrated by the public defender's office. Ultimately, what what it became it became clear quickly that 
it actually didn't really have any teeth. The ordinance um, mandated this funding, but the budget is also passed as an ordinance every year. Um, so it actually overrides the, the parity ordinance. So really, ultimately, there's no legal consequences if the budget that's passed doesn't doesn't meet this requirement. So when the mayor proposed her budget last year, it ignored the ordinance altogether. Um, it gave you know the public defenders a, a just a small portion of the funding that it gave to the DA's office. It cut both their fundings. Councilmember Williams and the public defenders sort of negotiated a compromise with the rest of the council and um, and were able to get them about 65% of the budget um, of the DA's office. When this happened, both the DA and the public defenders at the time cast it as a, as a win. The public defenders were getting a lot more money, but they both said, you know, this fell short of what we hoped. Um, the public defenders estimate that they they represent about 85% of criminal cases in New Orleans. The two, the DA's, you know, prosecuting 100% of them is the, is the idea behind this ratio. So this year, when the mayor's proposed budget came out, she she actually proposed parity, um, which was I think a, a big deal of defenders. You know, not only were they getting a lot more money, but they were being funded at eighty five percent of what she proposed funding the DA's office. And this is important because they part of what they argue is that without this sort of equity or parity in the funding they're not able to properly defend the if the DA's office has way more resources than them, then they're always going to be able to do a better job prosecuting the cases than the defenders will be able to do defending them. Um, so it's not just a, a, a question of volume of funding. It is really a question in their minds of of equity and 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 um, how well they're able to stand up against, you know, their opponents in court. Hmm. So this was a big deal that that that, that the public defenders were now potentially going to get 85% of their funding and they, and they still may, but at this budget hearing, uh, the DA went before the council and basically asked for, for 2 million more dollars in his city allocation. And that would basically put it at about 65% again, if he he gets that funding. So why is he, Um, why why is the, why the change of heart? What's he saying about that? Well, he's asking for money for, for some specific things. One thing being he's had to pay out a number of civil lawsuit settlements um, having to do with wrongful convictions and other uh, prosecutorial misconduct that occurred in the prior administration. Right. So that's one thing. But but when, you know, he was asked, there's a number of other things, uh, cold case funding. So so the ability to go back and look at uh, old cases and potentially uh, bring new charges and also for for trial attorneys. You know, and, and a council person asked him, uh, Jay Banks asked him, he said, does that mean that we're going to have to give the public defenders more money too? And the DA basically said, no. He said, you know, the the DA's office does the, has different responsibilities than the public defender's office. And and I don't think you're, you're not going to ask them to do some of these things that, that we're expected to do. Which... Is an argument that his that the prior DA made, uh, right. Leon Canazero, who who Williams was a, a staunch opponent of, and really at the time I think d- dismissed that argument as as not being a sufficient reason not to give equitable funding to the two organizations. So you know you, it was it was a pretty stark moment as someone who's been following this debate probably a little bit too closely um, right and i shouldn't i shouldn't be flip about this because it but it is a little bit funny that he would make such a pivot such an extreme change after having campaigned so 
vociferously. Yeah, I thought it was was definitely an interesting. Uh, yeah. Um, so what's the public defender's office saying to this? Uh, they basically said that, the, which I think they would have responded when Canazero said too, and maybe you know maybe they did, which is that the public defenders have some responsibilities that the DA's office doesn't have. They have to defend cases in, in uh, municipal court and city court, and also that you know the any time the DA has more resources to investigate cases and you know, gets to a point where they bring them to court, the public defenders are going to have an increased caseload too. You know, the, they basically said the idea with parity is that they have no control over the caseload. The district attorney's office has complete control. So whatever the district attorney decides to do is going to be, uh, is going to determine the number of cases that the, the public defenders have. Um, and so without some structure that, that ties the two funding, uh, the two, the two offices funding together, um, it can it can become totally inequitable. When you think about their resources too, you think about like the the DA's got a head start, right, on everything. Obviously, that's how basically this would work, I think. And you think about, you know, they can go right to NOPD. They can the thing I'm thinking about specifically with Michael's project that just came out um, is like surveillance cameras and their access to that immediately versus public defenders are having to go out and I, th- I think you're having to dig and wade through a lot more to to make a case on that side of things if they I don't know Nick if that makes any sense but no it does I mean I think it, it's true that the offices have have different functions and they they operate differently and you, you can of course point to things that one has to do and the other other doesn't but like I said without some some way of, of making it equitable it, it can turn into something where where one side has has a lot more resources than the other and and where exactly those lines are, I think they could argue about them, but the the DA's sort of change of heart on whether or not there has to be some parity at all was, was I, I thought, pretty um, startling, I, I guess. Yeah, startling. Okay, thanks, Nick. Thank you. Marta, the Louisiana Department of Education and NOLA Public Schools have been under federal oversight for more than six years due to allegations the agency schools failed to provide federally required special education services. Now they want to exit that consent judgment, but the SPLC, the Southern Poverty Law Center, which filed the lawsuit on behalf of 10 families uh, many years ago, does not think they're ready. How did the settlement come into place in the first place and what have we learned through these years? Yeah, so this all stemmed out of a 2010 lawsuit that the SPLC filed on behalf of 10 families. If we take a little trip back in time, you think about 2010, um, the NOLA Public Schools was running some of the schools in the city. The Department of Education was running some through the Recovery School District, uh, many of which were charters. And these allegations back then were that charters were both failing to enroll or not enrolling um, certain students with special education needs. And at the same time, those that they did enroll, um, that they weren't serving them properly. But those, so those were the allegations. And after many, many years, the two sides um, reached a, a deal, a settlement, and a consent judgment went into place in 2015. In that judgment, it required that an independent monitor, you know, check in with agencies multiple times a year, write a report every year. The Department of Education was required to monitor four different areas of special education law at schools throughout the um, city and they did that both through targeted monitoring monitoring schools that had you know statistics where you know maybe they were suspending kids with disabilities at a higher rate 
um, or they weren't identifying students with disabilities, you know, if that rate was really low, those schools would be targeted for monitoring. Um, and they also did some random monitoring. And what we've learned through all these years is that uh, there are a lot of problems at a lot of schools. Um, there are a lot of schools failing to provide services. There were um, students with disabilities were being suspended at a, you know, 1.5 1, 1. times more likely to be suspended than their peers. Just lots and lots of issues that certainly need to be reviewed and tracked and worked out. All right. And how's the school, how are, how are the school systems justifying this uh, request? So the school systems are saying, hey, we followed the, the judgment to the letter, what you want us to do. We've monitored schools. The requirement of the judgment was that schools be monitored. It wasn't, the requirement wasn't that schools not have any violations. So the school system and the state are saying, look, we followed those rules. We monitored schools for this many years. Anytime we found a problem, we worked to correct it. You know, they would put in place something called a corrective action plan. And they've had findings, legal jargon term of substantial compliance um, for several years in a row, which now technically does allow them to ask to be let out of the consent judgment. Okay. And the Southern Poverty Law Center's argument against moving on right now is? Yeah, so the Southern Poverty Law Center takes the stance of, well, yes, you have done the monitoring for several years, but you've found problems every single time. So they basically disagree with the, the court's finding of substantial compliance um, and say that that, you know, that should not be the conclusion that is reached because they are still finding problems in schools um, consistently. For example, right now, 12 of the districts, approximately 80 schools, um, have corrective action plans for problems that were found in the last couple of years. Uh, so what happens next with this? Yeah, so the two sides are, they've all created a, different plans or kind of exit strategies, um, and they're supposed to be discussing them over this month. Um, it looks like they're gonna meet in court again uh, in December. Um, it, it looks like that's gonna be a private meeting, more of a status conference. So they had a meeting um, earlier this month, and what I found interesting in this, you know, the public's not allowed to be in any of these status conferences. But what I found interesting in this um, minute entry is this sentence that said, the court explained it's continuing concerns with an appropriate exit strategy from the consent judgment. So it does seem like the, the judge is a little bit uh, perhaps nervous about letting the school district out from under its oversight. Skeptical, perhaps. The SPLC did put forward a plan, a five-point plan. They want to see the district doing a better job um, helping inform parents what special education programs look like at every school. They want the district to be more transparent um, in what the re-enrollment rate of is students with disabilities at every school. So, you know, if, if we're calling this a choice system, parents really need to be held up more and given more options and, you know, understand everything from enrollment options to the complaint process. Um, you know, the complaint process is really complicated here because you're, you're told to first go to your charter school principal, then go to your charter school CEO, then go to your charter school board. If that doesn't work, then you can go to the district. Right. But you know, that's a lot of different ladders to climb and, and, and people don't always understand kind of that process and right. order of operations, if you will. And multiple different um, operators here. I mean, it's just so it's so difficult with with the charter system. It it creates unique problems in and of itself. Yeah, and that, that, the STLC said that too. They said, you know, really the answer here is to centralize special education. Um, you, you've already centralized enrollment. You've centralized discipline. Um, they didn't go so far as to fully recommend that, but they they did kind of lay it out there as a as a as an option. Mm, okay. And the district has taken some steps to. Um, try to create programs for certain students with, um, you know, especially high needs or specific um, requirement, service requirements. Okay. 
All right, and now moving on to a really high profile name change. We're speaking on, on Thursday, they're meeting tonight to, to vote on a new name. The highly rated Uptown Charter School was named for Robert Mills Lusher, segregationist and Confederate official. The board is considering 11 proposed names. However, two still have Lusher in them, which um, some people in the school community are concerned about that. Tell us what's what's behind this and what about the building already? The building has already been renamed. Now we're talking about the operation. What's going on? Right. So in our theme or um, lived life of decentralized um, school system, the building has already been renamed by the Orleans Parish School Board um, as part of a, a large undertaking that really kicked off after George Floyd was murdered by the Minneapolis police officer um, in the summer of 2020. They've renamed dozens of buildings throughout the city who were named for Confederate officials or segregationists. Robert Mills Lusher is one of them. Uh, now it's fallen to the charter school and whether or not they want to rename their school. Lusher, like you said, is a really highly rated, highly sought after school. You know, they have a brand. And I think they've even said that themselves that they, you know, they're worried about having a financial loss from this. If they change the name, they're worried about, you know, losing their identity. Uh, but that, you know, that justification doesn't sit well with the many, many parents and students and community members who say, you know, that's not an excuse to keep a Confederate official's name on this school. And two of the names include Lusher Still. People right. Are... And that's, that's where you hear that argument of, you know, they don't want to lose any funding and they um, want to keep that brand. But I don't think that really doesn't sit well with a lot of people. So what's going to happen tonight is the renaming study group is going to present three names. Um, we don't know them yet. And then the board's going to consider those names. So I, I think what's going to be really interesting here is if one of those three names does include Lusher, um, it, it might we might be in for a long time. <laughs> ah, okay. And the two Lusher, the two Lusher names they say one would be named after Dr. Jean Lusher, who is a doctor who did a residency here at Charity Hospital, lived here for a few years, but you know mostly lived in Ohio and Michigan. Um, the other would just have the name Lusher and then take out the Robert Mills, but. Is the former a distinction without a difference, really? Isn't it just a, is it just a shell game almost? That's, that's what uh, people are criticizing them for because they're, they're saying you can't, this is not a, um, this yeah. is not a meaningful change. Okay, thanks, Marta. We'll stay tuned. And a quick update on this story. After a long and sometimes contentious meeting, the Lusher board appointed a new study group consisting of two board members and three administrators to hire a consultant to help with community engagement, which will ultimately result in the presentation of a new name for the school. Thank you. Thanks, see, you. see you guys later. This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. Thanks to our guests this week, Michael Isaac Stein, Nick Krastel, and Marta Jusen. You can read all the week's other news and opinions at our website, thelensnola.org. Thanks for listening.